0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Plains on the Prairie podcast. I'm Max. And I'm Sam. And today we are rounding out our known North Dakota Aces. Uh, This one, I I think we saved a really interesting one for for the last one.
1: Oh, for sure. And, and, you know, our last ace is not a World War II ace. I know. A little bit of a change. And, you know, that's something I was looking around and we don't like looking at other aces in other states. They're mostly World War II. To our recollection you know mm-hmm. it's kind of gonna be really cool here
0: yeah so. absolutely so today's ace is world war one fighter ace john owen donaldson um if you're ready sam i think we should just hop right in yeah let's do it uh, so john donaldson was born on may 14th 1897 at fort yates north dakota um so during that time it probably would have been a you know basically a frontier oh, yeah. base um, down there. And his father was the commander of Fort Yates, uh, U.S. Army General Thomas John Donaldson, Jr. Um, when he was still very young, John and his family relocated to Greenville, South Carolina, where he um, basically spent his entire boyhood. He uh, attended Greenville High School and then nearby um, Fern, yeah, Fernham uh, University and then Cornell University. However, uh, during that time, World War I was raging over in Europe. Uh, so we left Cornell early and joined the Royal Flying Corps in Canada. And so, Sam, something that we were talking about before the episode, um, I know during the Second World War you had the RCAF, or the Royal Canadian Air Force, um, but when he joined the Royal Flying Corps in Canada, it was still encompassed under the, the British, basically.
1: Yeah, right? basically it was a Commonwealth conglomerate, essentially. But, but yeah.
0: so, so let's say, you know, or... You know, maybe if he hadn't gone to Canada, like, and for whatever reason, he traveled thousands of miles to South Africa, he would have been in the same situation. In the same
1: boat, essentially, yeah. Gotcha. Interesting.
0: So, uh, he joined the Royal Flying Corps in March of 1917, what, just a month before the United (laughs) States entered the war? Um, So, when the U.S. entered the war, he was transferred uh, to the Air Service, U.S. Army, but Attached to the Royal Air Force or the RAF uh, not long after, specifically number 32 squadron. So I, again, we were talking before the episode, and I, I think it's one of those things that we've heard of with exchange pilots. I think John Glenn was an exchange pilot yep. with the, from the Marines to the Air Force in the Korean War. But I can't Im- imagine it was very common to see an American be transferred to a British unit, especially now that the Americans were in the war.
1: Right. Well, and with the, the nature of World War One, the US stayed out of it as long as possible. That's kind of our, our stance with both wars. Yeah. Uh, stay out of it until it becomes an American problem. <laughs> um, you know, you know how all World War One started or for the US, the Zimmerman yeah. Telegram, all you know, all the little baiting throughout right. the whole yeah. first three years. <laughs> um but basically, we had a lot of pilots that had foresight or just wanted to get involved. We had the uh, Lafayette Escadrille with mm-hmm. the French. A lot of pilots did join the Royal Flying Corps early. And the U.S. kind of turned a blind eye to that. There wasn't really anything put in place. Whereas, uh, like, during World War II, you had a massive penalty for being a, a member of a belligerent nation that wasn't the U.S. Really? Uh, yeah. But the U.S. also looked a blind eye to, like, the Eagle Squadron pilots and say, stuff. You know, like That's why we got a couple in our... You know, tri-state area from that, but um, but yeah, basically he was attached. It it wasn't uncommon, and a lot of our most experienced American pilots had previous experience with. You know, we didn't have an air force really. Right, um, it was the Army Air Service, I guess, but it still was borrowed aircraft. Like we got a model hanging here, and then uh, right above the office here in Newport twenty eight, that's in American colors. That's a French airplane. Mm-hmm. So there was, yeah, we didn't really have any American grown fighter aircraft at that point.
0: <clears throat> so within 2 months of being posted to number 32 squadron um in early July of 1918 he managed to shoot down a staggering 8 German planes. And Sam I know you know a lot more about uh World War 1 aviation than I do and you found more actual the nitty-gritty of those kills. Do you want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so all of his kills came within just over a month which that's pretty insane, you know. The life expectancy for a pilot was four to eight weeks generally as in in world war one it was a killer be killed mm-hmm. type nature there was a lot of chivalry and stuff involved too but a, a lot of his kills to my they were actually kills not just victories you know so uh you know the, it was just a different world compared to world war ii flying uh, your aircraft was canvas it was wood framed your guns jammed half the time <laughs> your engine was suspect at best and you're going up there, freezing your butt off in an open cockpit. And, yeah, it's just insane what they did. And, you know, you caught on fire. You were given three options. Jump, try to land it, or the third, you did yourself in. Yep. Yep, you had a service pistol required for that reason. It wasn't really to defend yourself right. on the ground. It was, just, do you want an easier way out? Yep. So, unfortunate, but it, it did That's happen a lot. Of, I,
0: I mean, to you know bring up a hollywood movie i assume you've seen fly boys i grew up watching that movie um i think as you know inaccurate as some scenes may be i think it shed a perfect light on you know the brutalness of yeah World there's war.
1: a lot of humanity in war yeah. and oh that's that's something you know us nerds get we, we, at least we can see past a little bit of the inaccuracies mm-hmm. every movie kind of has one of so course, yeah but but yeah, it's the humanity of war, and they cover those really well. But, um, yeah, the nature of World War One flying combat was a lot of um, staying ahead of the curve. It things were, it was the first true 100% land, sea, and air war. Yeah, absolutely. um, you had aerial combat pre in previous wars, you know, little localized conflicts in the Balkans, and you know, little t- pistol duels basically say, with Curtis it, pushers. It, yeah, yeah, it's not really. Not really counting, I guess. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the aircraft at the beginning of World War One, the doctrine was they're used for scouting, their army cooperation aircraft. You go, you go and look and, and observe enemy lines. They weren't armed. You had a pistol, maybe, yeah, but they weren't armed.
0: And so. but that was when you would have the scout pilots from belligerent nations sh-
1: shooting at each yeah, other. Yeah, they started bringing ser- their service using their service pistols yeah. or trying to figure out ways to mount the the gun. We can go. On a huge tangent here about how uh, aircraft synchronization gear works, uh, you know, armored propellers, all that. But anyways, all that aside, <laughs> by this point, that was all figured out. Yeah. And the doctrine changed. Fighters were used to get at other fighters. Get at bombers. Bombers were used, you know, to yeah. to take and out entrenchment positions. And, yeah, London. Yeah, yeah strategic. Yeah, the, the Zeppelins. And um but by this point, everything was still being figured out. But it was all about which. It was about the pilot just as much as the airplane. Uh, because you were learning new tactics and there was no thatch weave. There was no, you know, turn. You in, as you yeah. Went basically. yeah. Basically at the Immelman turn and stuff from there. But um, yeah, his first victory anyways, to get off that <laughs> enough, uh, came on July 22nd, 1918, all these will be 1918. Uh, he shot down a Fokker, probably a D seven at this point. That's kind of what I was surmising is always called Fokker biplane. Mm-hmm. So assume all of the Fokker, when I say that will be a D seven and then uh he got another one on the 25th then on the 8th of august he got a scout plane uh not really sure which kind they weren't very descriptive could have been a hansa brandenburg d1 could be a bunch there's a a lot of scout uh august 9th he got uh another scout plane that was there's three of them actually that were attacking presumably another british scout plane. they wouldn't you know most pilots if they had any sense back then it was the tactic of, you know, don't enter a fight. You can't win. Yeah. yeah like, well, you've probably seen the movie red Baron and yep. that, that's set in there like seven times. And, um, but yeah, that was a true tactic. And then, um, he, on the 25th got another Fokker D seven, the 29th, his, um, his last victory was a, uh, was another Fokker and that's a total of eight. So wow. really impressive. Yeah, um,
0: almost a double ace
1: in world uh, war one. Almost. Yeah. And, uh, you know, thinking about it, you know, the, the most was 80 from Rick Tuff. And yeah, really. So,
0: so during my research, I found that he had driven a few into either the ground or just broke them up.
1: Yeah. So I was kind of reading that too, sent them spiraling down or sent them out of control. Yeah. I'm guessing that's the equivalent of a probable. So he could have easily shot down more. But I didn't
0: know if he was doing some acrobatics and the yeah. pilots were like, what? And well, and spun out.
1: there wasn't really a confirmed, you know, the scoring system of damage probable, confirmed, shared, yeah. all that stuff really wasn't set at this if point. If you shot it
0: down, yeah, or if it trailed black smoke. Yeah.
1: I mean, they'd it, had right? tally boards. You've seen that in movies yep. too. Yep. I mean, we're referencing a lot of movies here, but, but, um, there's tally boards of victories, and that was actually a thing. Cool. Very so. Cool.
0: <clears throat> so yeah uh on september 1st 1918 he was shot down in aerial combat by another ace this time on the germans um lieutenant theodore quant if i'm pronouncing it quant Quaint, yeah,
1: uh, yeah
0: who was assigned to Jagdstaffel 53 or jasta 53 um i just i love how they say the old world war one german oh, squad yeah. it's just it sounds sinister uh so from there um oh let's see here i have um, He was immediately captured on the ground by German infantry, and uh, the next day, he and a companion uh, managed to escape. I believe they must have been at an aerodrome, because it said that he tried to steal a two-seater, Um, and in the ensuing scuffle, uh, was actually bayoneted by one of the German sentries, so... I don't know about you, but I would have loved to have been the, a fly on the side of that oh, plane yeah, to be watch really, that go down. Yeah. Um, miraculously, even despite being bayoneted, he and the companion must have escaped into the woods or something because they got away. And they were on the run until September 9th when they were caught trying to, I think, swim across a stream in no man's land. Yeah. And again, uh, recaptured and sent back to um uh to internment. However, uh, just another couple days later, almost out of the Three Stooges, they escaped again. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know what security was like in 1918. But I'm just
1: surprised he didn't get shot at or anything. Like, I reason. mean, the bayoneting—not surprising, but it's just but on a second time. time.
0: <laughs> you got to think if you get bayoneted in World War One, you're already hurt, and now you're in no man's land, which is
1: well, and the, you know how the field hospitals were back then, yeah, and it, well, and the conditions. There's, well, if you said a, a trench stream,
0: uh, that's what I'm probably saying.
1: nasty <laughs> you're
0: swimming in no man land water. That is disgusting. And if you have an open wound, I'm I'm surprised he made it that far. Yeah, that's that's remarkable. Uh, much
1: worse than Flint water, too. Yeah, so.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he uh he and um the same companion and then three other POWs managed to escape German captivity. And worked their way to the neutral Netherlands, which I actually did not know was neutral during World War I, mm-hmm. um, in October before the war ended. So uh, he finished the war, I believe, as a captain in the Air Service U.S. Army. And in October of 1919, while still in the U.S. or the Air Service, um, participated and won the U.S. Uh, Transcontinental Air Race. Um, and he was awarded the McKay Gold Medal for that. So, you know, pretty Pretty big deal for, oh, yeah. especially, you know, before 1920, that's, that's huge.
1: Well, and transcontinental flights weren't, well, getting off on a tangent here. <laughs> have you heard of Vinfiz? I have not. So it was a, it was a Wright Model B. So the a little bit of a more advanced, if we want to say that, yeah. a version of the Wright Flyer. And again, the Vinfiz Soda Company is a guy, he uh, was sponsored by them and he did the first transcontinental flight across the U.S., he had a, a train follow him with parts. He crashed dozens of times and, and made it all the way across California. And unfortunately, I mean, he, he crashed and died about like 200 yards from where he actually finished his flight. Excellent. But yeah, that, that happened in 1911. So not very long yet, you know.
0: Yeah, for real. And
1: aircraft didn't have the range. So he did multiple stops on this, of course. But, but pretty insane. That is, it. yeah, from yeah.
0: 1919. And I think the Wright Flyers flew, what, 16 years before, nineteen yeah. three. A lot happened. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, in March of 1920, uh, then Captain Donaldson was given command of the 94th Aerial Squadron. um, After the previous squadron commanding officer, uh, Captain Field E. Kidley was killed in a crash. Um, Like you just mentioned in your previous, you know, statement, seemed like aircraft crashes were the number one killer
1: of. of Yeah, it was kind of a learn as you go with safety measures and yeah, thankfully, now we have a lot of those safety measures. Otherwise, I don't know if I'd be sitting here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um.
0: So, uh, strangely, uh, Captain Donaldson resigned his commission from the Air Service in, I believe, the early 1920s. Um, and he went on to work for or become a pretty serious air racer and also the president of the Newark Air Service in New Jersey. So. Um, get in on the ground floor of well, an airline, especially in the 1920s, as air travel is really starting to, you know. Yeah,
1: it was a risky endeavor absolutely. at the same time because it's it flying back then was not for, not for the uh the the the, the, the middle class or yeah, yeah and, and just yeah it's it's a risky thing yeah, so absolutely. yeah. Uh,
0: so he continued throughout the 1920s as uh you know it seemed like a stunt pilot, an air racer, just you know one of those like do it all. Yep. Basically, yeah, and uh, on September 7th, 1930, um, Donaldson was flying a travel air whirlwind. If I believe I I know you probably know more about that airplane than I do, um, at the American Legion air race in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, he'd actually just won the race and was performing some stunt maneuvers, uh, you know, just aerobatics for the crowd, and something went wrong, and his plane went down, and uh crashed into the ground according to eyewitnesses it telescoped when it hit the ground so mm. i would assume that that's the aircraft just
1: yeah basically like an accordion yeah. compressing yeah.
0: and uh miraculously donaldson survived the initial crash but was very very injured in the uh the wreck and uh passed away at a nearby hospital from his injuries um he is buried in winds oh, wow excuse me westview cemetery in atlanta georgia so um you know not i think he was what 30 years old when he passed away yeah 33
1: like, 33 yeah so not That's, too old no no not at
0: all. but I, I think a very fitting you know a fitting end to our north dakota Ace series and you know oh, yeah. interesting guy even if he didn't spend that much time in north dakota right we well, still have him by birthright so
1: yeah we, we have him it's kind of yeah we got a couple that barely qualify yeah. but they qualify they
0: qualify uh, so now we'll move into the squadron. Um, number thirty two squadron of the RAF was formed on twelve January nineteen sixteen, and first flew the Airco DH two. Um, I saw a picture of one, and it looked like something that Leonardo da Vinci would have drawn up.
1: Yeah, and they're they're very kite like. Um, <laughs> the the Airco aircraft were you know the the thought of those was um you didn't have synchronization gear was uh first actually through the Germans Ooh. the. They they introduced it first with the uh, Fokker Eindecker. You, you probably are aware of that the the monoplane. Yep. Yep. And that was what when the Fokker Scourge started. If you've heard of that term, where they just completely wrecked the the Royal Flying Corps and really? the French. They just <laughs> huge huge victories for them, huge losses for the the Allies. Um, and uh, you know you had uh, Roland Garros, the French ace with the armored prop at that point. But it was just the Airco was. Hey, we don't have to fire through a prop, yeah. so we're going to use this. And and the pusher (laughs) technology was pretty popular back then, too.
0: So speaking on the the Fokker scourge, as you said, um, how did these early pilots, especially German pilots, get to be so good? Was it just, I I assume, because in World War II, you know, the leading German aces almost exclusively got all their 200 kills on the Eastern Front.
1: Yeah, and you can argue german eastern front kills and a lot of their early war successes were due to their high quality of pilots because a lot of them started pre-war they were part of the hidden air force you know and um but a lot of their victories are against very obsolescent aircraft Uh, think about going against the the poles who held their own really well for what they had they had uh, pzl p7 p11 p24 you know just not very comparable to a 109. A lot of those type of aircraft, the same with the Russians, Barbarossa, I-16s, I-153s, stuff that can't yeah. compete with a 109 gotcha. or even a 190 later, a little bit later. Uh, the
0: World War One German pilots. They, they were, yeah, they were they, just that.
1: They were learning with, with everything. And, um, you know, you have the false sense of, or the false, you know, image of a pilot being an individual. Thankfully, you know, the air combat isn't that way, really. I mean, if it was that way, there'd be a lot higher death toll um, because, you know, you you hunted as a group. The Germans never were on their own on purpose. And it was all about tactic sharing. The Germans just did really well. You had some standouts. I mean, you had the heroes that stood out and they were public figures, mostly for pop, uh, propaganda, like Max Immelman and um, you got uh, Richthofen, yeah. Göring, Udet, all those, you know, high profile, the ones, know, the ones right? everybody yeah. knows, yeah. So it was it was very much a tactic share.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. So number 32 squadron would uh, fly missions over the Western Front. I I saw that they participated in the Battle of the Somme Mm -hmm. and a few other of those really nasty campaigns. Um, And eventually the DH-2s were replaced by DH-5s and then um, the SC-5As, which was what Donaldson was flying during the war. Um, at war's head, wow, excuse me. At war's end, um, they returned to the UK and were deactivated in December of 1919. I i, I believe they were reactivated interwar,
1: they were, yes, um,
0: flying Hawker Hurricanes. And
1: yeah, they even like got snipes oh, after really? they're reactivated, which is World War One era, you know, aircraft. So at 19, I think 1920 or 21 when they're reactivated, it was, yeah, so it's kind of. You know, still that transition period.
0: Sam, I feel like you could do a five-hour-long episode on every interwar plane.
1: I don't know if people would want to listen <laughs> to that, though. <laughs> but yeah, really interesting. And, and the, we'll get into the SE-5, I suppose, in a little bit. But, yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, and I know during the Second World War, they flew uh, combat missions early on in some of the more lesser-known campaigns. I think they were one of the squadrons that escorted... Mm-hmm. Uh, fairy am I saying that? fairy swordfish they escorted them on their way to hit um some of those early war german battleships i think the prince eugen
1: prince uh, eugen and yeah, the Scharnhorst Scharnhorst yeah i think well other,
0: and i think that was a doomed mission from the start basically
1: yeah and they were also stationed in north africa following the torch landings mm-hmm. i saw with spitfires
0: and then uh, i think finished out the war in greece during mm-hmm. the civil war there yeah so some lesser-known conflicts for the RAF. And
1: you, and you know I read about that. Oh,
0: yeah. <laughs> That's
1: why I was up late. <laughs> yep.
0: um, so uh, today, I, I should mention, um, following World War II, they were converted into a training unit, or not training unit, um transport unit, and today provide um, VIP transport for the RAF and, I believe, the Royal Family, because mm-hmm. they have Royal in the, the title of the squadron, so... Whenever you see uh, Prince Henry or one of those guys, I don't know.
1: I don't follow. Yeah.
0: We won a war in 1776 to not care about it. So,
1: yeah, I think that that's. We're we're dudes. We don't follow it too hard.
0: But, yeah, they're still around today, and they fly um, a lot of VIP, VIP planes. So. Yeah, they're basically
1: Dassault Falcons, the three-engine yeah. private jets that you see, you know, at the rich rich people's side of the airport. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, really really interesting and another cool cool tidbit there, seeing that they're still around, you know, and the fact they're flying around VIPs is pretty neat, too.
0: Yeah,
1: very cool. But, yeah, and then the, uh, the aircraft he flew was the SE-5A primarily mm-hmm. during his career, uh, the SE5, you know, was arguably the best aircraft the Allies put forth in all of the war. I would, I would say it's right up there with the, uh, uh or most advanced, I should say, um, right up there with like the Spad thirteen. I was going
0: to say another Spad is usually the yeah one that gets the fame.
1: And they were uh, between the two British, the the Camel and and the SE5A. The SE5 was favored by almost every pilot. Oh, really, uh, the Camel was really good once it was in the air. It was a bear to fly though. is what I was what I was reading very skittish uh, very hard to fly and the SE5 was the opposite it was very no vi- not much for vices you know it just just did its job Good. and yeah it's super and, super cool looking too yeah
0: i was going to say you look at an SE5 and they normally maybe it's a different plane but they have a, a lewis machine gun mounted on, on top. top yep that's really that's interesting yeah so did the pilots have to compensate for you know where if they were diving down on a target they had to say okay you know the machine gun is what
1: yeah you're not sighting right you're yeah. just you're just reaching pulling that trigger oh so, you're actually reaching yeah clock. some sometimes sometimes they had like a gotcha they were mounted differently but but yeah they gotcha. they're actually one of the fastest aircraft of the war
0: really
1: uh come to think of it you know like the dr1 the triplane mm-hmm. one of the slower ones actually it was i mean very maneuverable very but it, it didn't top out over 100 miles an hour and the SC-5, if this is me, a shot in the dark, I didn't look up the specs of the aircraft. I think it had a top speed of about 120-something, which is gotcha. pretty fast for yeah. World War I. Or, World War I, absolutely. And they were used all over the place. They were they were used, you know, in the in the Middle East conflicts during – or in the Middle East um, theater, you know, against the Ottomans. And they were used all over the place. And, yeah. and uh, they stayed on with squadrons for a while after the war. I'm not sure how late. The U.S. used them mm-hmm. quite extensively as well because we were still figuring well, out our own fighter. Our they yeah, the only – indigenous fighter from that area era was probably the Thomas Moore scout. You've probably heard yep. of that. Heard of scout. Yep. So so pretty interesting. Um, and I didn't see there is one SE5 in the at Dayton. Oh and, really? Yeah. Is it's, it original? It is. It's not in cool. it's not in the markings of of number thirty two squadron. There is none, but it is I forget the guy's name, but one one of the top aces.
0: Is it an air service marked it, it it's it RAF? it's
1: raf mark he was attached to the raf it's marked up as this guy i think he got. it was less than it was less than um uh, rickenbacker but, but one of the top aces for the u.s during exactly. the war which if you think about it rick rickenbacker you get you get 26 kills 27 high twenties <laughs> kills in in two years of involved less than two years of involvement is, or yeah, it was a little less than two because yeah. they joined April seventeenth and were ended November eighteenth. So
0: I just I, I have to imagine, like when you hear about these pilots shooting down um, you know, twenty-six planes in that amount of time, or going back to our first day, Scrappy Bloomers shooting down five and fifteen minutes. I, I like are they just lining up in front like a carnival game? It's it's something they must have paid them
1: yeah (laughs) (laughs) so um, it
0: just it's one of those things that i i can't i've never been in that situation and i know never, hope we don't have to but it's like it's it's just you'll you'll never
1: see it again though yeah i mean yeah i mean even the pilots won't see it again if they're the ones doing it because everything's beyond visual range at this point and it's it's a different time, and it's it was really fun to research. I mean, I learned a lot doing this yes, episode. I don't I know much too. about World War One compared to World War II. So
0: I I agree. Um, I I think this series did a lot for me to really appreciate, you know, some of the guys that came before us mm-hmm. in you know World War Two, World War One, and Donaldson's case. Um, it's you know it, it's been a rewarding experience and. Um, If we do find any more North Dakota Aces, we will include them um, in this series. But for the meantime, I think we are going to take a bit of a break uh, just with the holidays coming up. Um, And then, like Sam mentioned, this was this North Dakota Aces series was a lot of research.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's been about two and a half months of straight putting these out. I mean, we had a couple two week breaks in there, but, you know, I was to research further on our episodes. so um but we still will be putting out videos for you guys we actually have something exciting you know a couple things exciting coming up yeah. for you and we're really really pumped for those and more more of the video format but you know for now we're going to like like you said take a break and we'll figure out some more topics yeah. and we'll probably shy away from a series for now if we do any episodes coming up before the end of the year but they'll be they'll be fun to research regardless. they always so, are yeah I,
0: I i love it i you know, I, I think I speak for both of us. If any of us didn't enjoy it, we wouldn't be doing the podcast. Right. So, yeah. Well, with that, uh, thank you guys for giving this one a listen. Um, Let us know if there's any topics that you want us to cover when we get back to doing, um, you know, podcast episodes in a month or two, but
1: yeah, for sure. And then uh, check out all the new uh, thumbnails that Max has made. They're yeah. all, they're <laughs> all, at least on YouTube, they're all up and they're very eye catching. I mean, um my my dad was here well for your mustang mania event here at the museum on tuesday my dad was coming he's like are, is, are those the new thumbnails <laughs> did you come out with new thumbnails and i was like yeah and he's like did you make them nope <laughs> and he keep he, he, uh, they're eye-catching i mean yeah Um uh, just seeing like even on our view counts it goes up in yeah, their thumbnails yeah. <laughs> Ooh,
0: cool. well, yeah awesome all right well thank you guys for tuning in and have a great rest of your week
1: all right see you guys thanks